Okay, everybody, we're here ready to talk about the Gospel of Mark. We're watching the life of Jesus uh, kind of in fast forward. Mark is a quick-moving Gospel, and so we're following the places that Jesus goes and the things that He does and the things that He says, and we are spiraling toward uh, Jerusalem. We are in Mark chapter 9 today. Are you ready to talk about Mark chapter 9? Absolutely. All right, Mark chapter 9 actually begins with what is not a very good chapter division. Um, really, the first verse of Mark 9 fits better with chapter 8, and we did include it at the end of chapter 8 last week. But Mark 9, it really, it really to understand verses 2 through the next several verses, we need to remember the, the conversation and what had got said at the end of chapter 8. Jesus had kind of dropped the bomb on the disciples that, uh, talking very plainly back in Mark chapter 8, that I'm going to be killed. By these people, yep. And after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. That's right. And of course, the apostles had some difficulty with that, even though he spoke very plainly. And then Jesus uses uh, that as an opportunity to follow up and talk about what real discipleship is about. And then Mark nine verse one, where he says uh, that the kingdom is coming, and in fact, it's going to come in the lifetime of many of those guys that were standing right there, right then. Right. So, with all of those thoughts in mind, Mark 9 verse 2 then says, after six days, now, I, I think that's important, that little time marker there, to let us know that these guys have had essentially a week to chew on the things that he said. Yeah. You know, have, have they digested this stuff? Are they, you know, hopefully getting out of it what, 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 what they ought to take from this? Um, the kingdom is coming. Um, Jesus is going to be the king. This is how he's going to become the king, and that is by suffering. He's not going to become a king in the way that they think he is, but he's going to become a king. So, Mark 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now, let's just notice here, that first of all, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. Yeah. We noticed previously in some previous chapters uh, that Jesus had done a miracle in which he only brought in Peter, James, and John. The other nine apostles were, were left out of the house uh, while that happened. Um, there's this episode, and there are other episodes when you look in the Gospels where Jesus does some things uh, just with these three guys. I don't think that means that these three guys were like, you know, the three most important apostles. Super apostles. Yeah. No. It, it, it just means, I think it just means he just, he was just closer with those guys. Yeah. Um, and the, he's, he's a person too. So, yeah. Makes sense. It says natural. He's going to gravitate toward uh, certain guys. I don't know what it was about Peter, James, and John. You know, you think about, the, the person I always think about as being kind of the left out one here is, is Andrew. Yeah. You know, uh, that's Peter's brother. And he was a fisherman along with the other three guys. In fact, it seems like all four of those guys had been in business together. And like, <clears throat> why didn't Andrew get to be a part of this? I don't know. Uh, but Peter, James, and John get the privilege of seeing and doing some things that uh, only those three got to do. Yeah. And this here in uh, Mark chapter 9 is probably, I mean, of all the things that they got the privilege to do that the others didn't, this, this has to be like number one on the list. Definitely. They're taken up to this high mountain. We don't know what mountain this was. We noticed in the previous chapter that Jesus had been uh, up in Caesarea Philippi, which was as far north as he would ever go. So if he's still in that region, the closest mountain there uh, that's known was Mount Hermon, which has about a 9,000-foot peak, which just, the reason I say all that is to say uh, that there would have been the opportunity here for them to have kind of some seclusion. 
um, mm. where there wouldn't be anybody else around, and Jesus could reveal himself in this special way and have solitude with just these three guys and what's about to happen. And what the text says, it says that he was transfigured before them. Uh, the word there is actually the same word that's used in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, uh, where uh, we often make the point uh, about metamorphosis. Yeah. Uh, it's that same word. Uh, when Paul talks about, but be ye transformed uh, by the renewing of your spirit, uh, talking about the idea of a metamorphosis from you know, a caterpillar to a butterfly, this complete change in you know, even just physical appearance. And that's what happened here. Jesus was metamorphosed uh, before these guys. Now, we don't know everything about that, we get some descriptions here in the next verse, and then Matthew and Luke's gospel give some you know, similar descriptions as well. But I don't even think words really could do justice as to what they must have saw that day. Um, he was transfigured before them, verse 3. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Other translations, and, or actually the other corresponding passages talk about that not even any launderer on earth could have you know bleached them this white yeah um, just the radiance the shining of, of this was just otherworldly um, and then verse 4 there then appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus now what a conversation <laughs> yeah and we're really not even treated to, well, Mark doesn't record any of that conversation. Uh, I think it's Luke's gospel says that one of the things that is discussed is that Jesus discusses with, with Moses and Elijah what he was going to do. And that is how he was going to die. And he was going to end up fulfilling the very things that these guys had spoke and had commanded and prophesied was going to come. And think about how neat that must have been for them to get to talk with the one who was the fulfillment of all these things that centuries ago they had been, you know, teaching laying, and laying the groundwork, laying the groundwork for. Yeah. Um, what a chapter chat that must have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Moses, of course, represents what here? Uh, the what do you mean? The Old Testament? Yeah, he rep he represents the law yeah. in the Old Testament. Uh, he was the one who God gave the law to uh, on a mountain, uh, yeah. not coincidentally. Um, and then Elijah, of course, represents the prophets. Uh, right. If you talked to a Jew back then, uh, you know, who's the greatest of the prophets, they probably would have told you Elijah. Um, and, and once again, not coincidentally, Elijah has a pretty amazing moment on a mountain as well. And now here they all three are convened together on this particular mountain. And It's you know, poetry that only God could craft. Oh, yeah. Another point to make there, too, is that actually that little article you sent to me, about uh, Moses and Elijah yeah. and, and Christ, about how the the miraculous eras that we read about in the Bible coincide with those three bullet points yeah. uh, at that period of about 70 years yeah. for, for their ministries. Yeah. And these were the guys who were wielding that awesome power, and then you know, it culminates in Jesus. That's right. That's right. And, like, that's, that's a whole other uh, tangent, but um, yeah, that's kind of neat that we're seeing all this. And, and it just kind of shows that um, God recognized, at least in, especially in the mind of a of a Jew, and you know Peter, James, and John would have all been Jews, and so they would have recognized. Oh, I mean Moses. I mean that's that's the guy who represents the old law, mm -hmm. and Elijah represents the prophet who tried to get people to return uh, back to God's law and God's way, and to truly be God's people. And so these th these two guys 
you know, would have been on like, you know, the Mount Rushmore yeah. of, 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 of the Jewish mind. And Peter, James, and John, I'm pretty sure, recognize that. Peter, we know for sure, recognize that. And that explains why he ends up saying the things uh, that he does. So, verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6. I always laugh at this verse. Yeah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. But but in Peter-like fashion, <laughs> yes. rather than what what a lot of people do when they don't know what to say, which is, you know, they, Keep your mouth shut. they don't say anything. Yeah. He, again, something I think both of us can relate to, he just, he just stammers this out kind of haphazardly. He suffers from foot-in-mouth disease. And, uh, and 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 I do Jesus too. Jesus can heal all diseases. He so. can, thankfully. He's he's the great physician. Um, but yeah, so he offers this. Hey, Lord, this is awesome. Uh, let's commemorate this event. Uh, and there's always kind of some confusion as to maybe what is meant here when he says, "Let's set up these three tents," or other translations say, "These three tabernacles." Is he saying, "Let's set up three like little shelters"? Where you know these guys can stay in, and we can you know prolong their visit, you know that, that they can stay here for a little while, yeah. or or is it the idea of like these are like little shrines? We're going to set up three memorials for you know one for all three of you guys, and we're going to bestow this special honor. Uh, we don't know exactly mm-hmm. what he was going for, and the truth is, <laughs> Peter probably didn't even know what he was going for <laughs> either. It's like just you know. Words need to come out of my mouth right now, it's, so I'm going to start talking. It's like if Jesus showed up on your doorstep, and you're just like, oh, can I get you a glass of water? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You yeah. don't know why he's there. You know, you're just like, it would kind of floor you, so, yeah. Well, it's it's clear that, that God recognized that there was something off in, in what Peter was suggesting here, because the very next thing that happens, verse 7, a cloud overshadows them, and a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now if you're keeping score here in the Gospel of Mark, this is actually the second time that God has voiced his approval of his son from heaven in a loud, audible way. Mm -hmm. The first of those, of course, was back in chapter 1 after Jesus was baptized. Uh, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And here, in addition to saying, this is my son and I'm pleased with him, he also takes it a step further with that statement, listen to him. And that is, this is God validating Jesus in a very public way that this is the guy to listen to. You know, what Moses did and said was important. What Elijah said and did was important. But their time has passed. This is now the era of my son. Yeah. You listen to him. And that's what we see, like, Physically, in the in the next verse, there. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't said all that. Let's just stop and make a quick point here. How I wish many people in our religious world today would would get this. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many times have you talked with somebody, maybe about, for example, like the subject of instrumental music and worship, and they immediately jump back to the Old Testament and start right. talking about, hey, look here, they had instruments back here during the time of the Psalms and during the time of David. Um, what those folks need to hear is they need to hear God speaking and saying, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. Yeah. What does he say in his covenant? What does he want? Um, 
And you can do that for any any number of, of, of subjects uh, where folks are just listening to, to other sources, maybe even, again, biblical sources. You know, yeah. all right, so I found me a verse over here in the Old Testament. That About says tithing. Yes. Yeah, that's um, one, a big one, tithing. Yeah, there's, a, there's a whole host of things that... Uh, like for for a period of time, yeah, that's yeah. who you need to listen. You did need to listen to Moses. Yeah. Um, if you lived during that time as a as a Jew, you you better listen to what Elijah was was saying and trying to compel you to do. Yeah, we're not stoning people. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, this is a this is a different ball game we've entered here uh, with with the Christ. Um, well, so Jesus is is his his teaching is being noted here by God as being of supreme and of the greatest uh, authority, and after saying that, you know, the text says uh, suddenly, you know, Elijah and Moses disappear, and all that's standing there is Jesus only. I, I'm always curious as to like how long did this event last, uh, and lots of those other details. Again, we'll have to put this on the list of things to to learn about in heaven, but I. I if I go on a time machine and could go back and see any event in Bible times, this one would definitely be. It'd be in the top five for sure. Um, it just these guys were privileged, and the fact that they saw this clearly had an effect on them. Uh, and we know it had an effect on Peter because it is Peter who later on in Second Peter in his second epistle, chapter one, he references this event and speaks specifically about this event and what he saw. And he uses that kind of as a, a a place to kind of point and say, this is why you need to believe the things that I'm writing to you about. You know, the, the prophetic word that we're delivering to you, because we saw these things, and nobody else can attest to saying that they saw things such as this. And there was three of us there. Again, this isn't like just like I had this religious experience myself. No, I got two other guys over here besides myself, and we'll all vouch. And not only that, but they'll vouch to the point of putting their head on the gallows. Yes. And in the case of all, well, John is the only one, as far as we know, didn't actually die as a martyr. But yeah. Peter and James did die as and martyrs. John would have, though. And John would have, yes. Yeah. Um, the Lord just needed him on the island of Patmos in order to deliver the final revelation. But um, anyway... Um, yeah, but these guys got to see a one-of-a-kind thing. And, uh, and like I said, it, it, it changed them forever, I think. Um, that doesn't mean they understood everything about it right away. And we see evidence of that uh, here in the next couple of verses. So, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, we might kind of wonder there in verse nine. Well, wh why why would Jesus not you know want to let them just just go tell everybody about the awesome thing that they had just seen? And if ever there's a time to use the word awesome, that's th it. This event would have been it. Why not just let them go tell everybody and like kind of start you know again proving that Jesus was what he was claiming to be all along? Just let them let them talk and tell about it. Um, I'll tell you what I think is maybe a reason why he didn't want them to talk about it now and he wanted to wait until later after he was risen from the dead. Stop and think about how humiliating it would be to go and start telling everybody, even the, even the non-believers and people who were like, you know, militant against Jesus, and start telling them, man, we saw the most glorious thing 
ever, the most glorious incarnation of Jesus. Yeah. And when I preached on this subject a few weeks ago, that was one of the points that I made that like they saw the glory of Jesus in a way that they had yeah. had not they'd never seen. And to go around and tell everybody about that. And he's so glorious and he's awesome. And we heard God speak from above and, and said, This is my son, and uh, he's so awesome and he's so great and he's so marvelous and he's wonderful. And then a few weeks later, to look and to see that same Jesus hanging on a cross, practically naked, yeah. stripped of his dignity, bleeding, dying, looking like, you know, a nobody, looking like a common criminal. And imagine the humiliation. He was treated of, worse than your common criminal. Yeah, he was actually. treated even way worse. Imagine the mockery that would have ensued, you know. This What's glorious about that, yeah. You know, there, there, there's nothing great about that. You guys are fools. Uh, that's ridiculous. All that stuff you told us a few weeks ago about what you saw, maybe you would even doubt that it was even true, especially now. Look, it couldn't have been true. Um, and that's already, I mean, we know, and Jesus probably had the foresight to know, that's already how they felt anyway. Oh, yes. So to imagine the, you know, the, the like you said, on all sides, the mockery coming to them, that would be even more discouraging yeah. and debilitating. Yeah. It, it's, it's not even going to matter what they say. But imagine, on the other hand, after Jesus goes through all of that, and then he rises from the dead, triumphant over the grave, and he ultimately ends up ascending back into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the throne of God and he's exalted as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And then to start telling people, we got a glimpse of his glory on the mountain. Yeah. Like we got to see as close as we're ever going to see in human bodily form yeah. the glory of God. And then to tell people about that, yeah, that would have a lot of different effect. Wouldn't yeah. now, and also think about the not just the timing of telling that to other people and how it would have that much more punch and impact after he'd risen from the dead. And, you know, like you said, you know, and like the Bible says, disciples have seen him yeah. risen from the dead. Also think about this definitely has something to do with the mental switch that must have flipped. Just on they, themselves. Yeah, like yeah. when they, 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 wanted to, they wanted to go tell everyone now, and then they're holding that in. Then they see him die, and they're like, "Was that even true? Were we delusional? No, wait, it happened." But you know, and then and then when they see Jesus risen, then they're like, "Now's the time." Yeah. Now we're ready. Yeah. We're gonna do this. And then the, you imagine how fired up you would be. Yeah. On that emotional roller coaster, it's like passion and zeal. Yeah. So much like overwhelming because now you've had this weapon. Yeah of influence of you've seen these this miraculous thing and now you're like I can share this yeah, like with Jesus, confidence. Jesus gave us the go ahead to now hey remember when he said that after I'm resurrected now I can like engage my weapon yeah. like in the, the excitement that would have went along with that. Yeah, I, and I think yeah. all of that works and, and that probably just speaks to in a neat way like this is all again part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. You know, even down to those kinds of details that like, yeah. here's this thing that you guys saw. It, it's not going to be effective. It's not going to have the same amount of, of, of oomph unless you say it at this particular point in the plan. Right. And, um, and that's why I think too that the Lord, not just with, with preachers of the gospel like you and I, but just Christians in, in our lives, will teach us certain lessons at certain times and reveal those things to us, I think, through providence or just mm -hmm. however. And then you kind of click, and I'm sure you've had moments like this where you're like, that's a teaching moment. Yeah. And like this has something to do with where I was. And now look at where I am. And I can share that with someone 
because he's risen. Yeah. And and that's that's an empowering thing. It is. Because um, we have that, that metaphorical resurrection from, you know, from like Romans 6, where it's like, we look back and we're like, those were our sins. We were dead in those trespasses. And now we're alive. And now we can go tell people about it because we are alive. Right. And, you know, the Bible never tells us in, in with Peter or with James or John, like, we don't, we don't get all the details about, like, when it all clicked and, 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 and any of that. But it's clear it did. And Peter's the best example of this. Because think of him right here. Yeah. Just goof, blundering, saying the, whatever's on his mind. And then several years later, it takes some time. But by the time he writes Second Peter, he is, number one, we're told he's an elder in the church. Yeah. You know, and he has all this wisdom. He has preached powerfully on the day of Pentecost. He's done all of this stuff in helping to, you know, to essentially usher in the kingdom of God. And again, even though we don't see the switch flipping, we don't, we don't know the exact moment, it's clear it did because what a drastic change. This event and just being, being with Jesus, you know, the, the change that it had on him overall. Um, so they question about all this, about, you know, why, why can't we tell this now? And, and you know, what's this mean about this resurrection? We're still not getting this. Verse 11, Then the disciples asked Jesus, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? All right, so Jesus has been talking about the kingdom. kingdom's going to come. And they remember that there is something that the scribes say, which is actually something that is a, a, a word of prophecy from the Old Testament, about how before the day of the Lord comes, before this kingdom is ushered in, Elijah is going to come. And that's taken from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that Elijah is going to return um, before all these things come to pass. Now, what they probably thought that meant was that meant like the actual Elijah is yeah. going to come back because the last that we knew of Elijah, if you're a student of the Old Testament, Elijah's taken up in a whirlwind into heaven. Yep. We're not even told that he actually dies. The old and chariot so, of flame. Yeah, so there's yeah. the anticipation that like, okay, well, the actual physical Elijah is going to come back. Maybe Peter and James and John were just kind of sparked by this thought, by the fact that, hey, we just saw Elijah uh, up there on the mountain. Yeah. And so what's all this business about, about Elijah? Jesus says to them, verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, if we only had Mark's gospel, we may be left to, to, to draw some conclusions that we might not feel totally comfortable making. But thankfully, Matthew's gospel mm -hmm. uh, supplements this conversation. Because we're told in Matthew 17... Uh, here's the fuller extent of that conversation. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 9 down through verse 13. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Well, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. But they did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Verse 13, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Yeah. John the Baptist is the Elijah that was to come. Now, I don't believe that that means that like, John the Baptist was actually Elijah reincarnated in yeah. a different form. Um, 
I think what that means is it means that John the Baptist came um, in the you know in, in the spirit and in the same power as Elijah. And there's a lot of comparisons that could be made between those two guys. He's a type. Yes. Um, you think about how bold both of those guys were. Elijah was bold enough to go stand in front of King Ahab and say, "No, you are the troubler of Israel." And the same token, John the Baptist was bold enough to go before Herod and say, "Hey, buddy." You got somebody's wife that you ain't got no business being with, right? Um, and so that's and that's just one illustration. Yeah, um, I mean John the Baptist uh, rebuked the Pharisees as well. Yes, and and things of that nature too. Yeah, which that was the same type of stuff that Jesus was doing that was considered extremely bold. Right. And so the prophecy was that when this Elijah came, uh, that he was going to have to suffer and he was going to have to uh, be treated with contempt, and in the same way so would the Son of Man. And when the disciples realized that, okay, he's talking about John the Baptist, and we already know John the Baptist died, maybe now something's starting to click with them. Oh, this stuff about Jesus saying he's going to suffer and die, maybe that really is how all this is going to be. Right. And, uh, and so there, there, maybe there is some connecting of the dots between what had been spoken all along in the Old Testament. Uh, what, what John the Baptist you know, that type of Elijah experience was really just a preview of the suffering and the pain that Jesus was going to endure. Um, kind of a shift here now, beginning in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, <clears throat> they saw a great crowd around them. So, all right, so here's Jesus with the apostles, and now they're gathering together with all of the other disciples, that is, just all the other followers of, of, of Jesus. And now great crowds assembled around them, and the scribes are arguing with them. Mm -hmm. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and they greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So Jesus wants to know, hey, what, the, the, the other nine apostles who were, who were still down here at the, you know, wherever they were left, yeah. what, what, what are you down here arguing with these guys about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So you remember back in Mark 6 that Jesus had given the disciples, specifically we're mm -hmm. told, the ability to cast out unclean spirits, which is what this boy has. Um, has some kind of an unclean spirit that causes him... Um, you know, not just this this mutinous, but you know, even you know, seizures. Yeah, like seizures and and those sorts of things, and you know, foaming at the mouth. We get to thinking of like you know, like almost rabid, like an animal, and uh, just does terrible things. This is what this is what demonic spirits did to people in New Testament times. Um, but the disciples apparently were not able to cast out this particular spirit. Um, I think Jesus' reaction in the next verse is going to tell us that they should have been able to cast out this spirit. Because verse 19 says that Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So I think evidently the disciples should have been able to handle this because Jesus' tone here is... Disappointed, yeah. Yeah, it's disappointment, it's frustration. Yeah, I, 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 I gave you this power. Uh, he calls them faithless. Um, come on. You know, we, we, ought, we ought to be to a point now where um, 
in the maturation of you guys where you understand some things and you're able to do some things. I've granted you the ability to do some things. So Jesus says, just bring him here. So verse 20. They brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately, I mean, just like the sight of Jesus, it just has an immediate reaction yeah. on this unclean spirit. Uh, and it ends up convulsing the boy. And he fell on the ground and he rolled out, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it, is often and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. There's, there's something about this father's statement that I like, and there's something about this father's statement that I, I don't like. Yeah. What I like is I like him saying, uh, us, yeah. have compassion on us, help us. You know, yeah, it's, it's help his boy, but like, he, this guy's got a sense of family here. Yeah. Help us. We need you. Um, but this statement that he says here when he says, if you can do anything seems to betray maybe some faithlessness on his part. Yes. And Jesus acknowledges that. Look at the very next verse, verse 23. Jesus said to him, If you can? Yeah. And he's like quoting back to him. Why are you if, asking me this? Yeah, yeah there, there's no if here on Jesus' part. It, it, the, if, if there's a breakdown in this, it's not going to be on you know the divine side of the equation. Yeah. If there's a breakdown here, it's going to be on the human side of the equation. All things are possible for the one who believes. So Jesus is challenging, pushing this guy. Hey, buddy, let's let's work on your faith here. Yeah. And 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 let's see what happens. Verse twenty-four. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, and he said, "I believe. Help my unbelief." There we go. There we go. That's a great statement. Absolutely. That's, that think of the humility it would have taken to acknowledge that. All right. I, I've got some faith, but there's also some unbelief in here, and help me get rid of that, Lord. I don't want it. Uh, I don't want there to be doubts. I don't want there to be any skepticism on my part. So verse 25, When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Well, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Mm. Now, I'll tell you what I think of that statement in verse 29 when Jesus says, you know, his answer to them as to why they couldn't cast it out. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Uh, I think Jesus is saying, you guys gave up too quickly. Yeah. I, I, that, that's the way I take that. Um, you guys, you know, when he came down to the bottom of the mountain, maybe if you all hadn't been standing there fussing with the scribes, verse 14, and maybe instead if you'd have been more doing more praying and petitioning the Lord here as you're trying to bring out this unclean spirit, then uh, this would have happened. Yeah. Um, you, you just... You, 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 you just didn't have your priorities in the right place. And um, it seems like the disciples here, at least in this particular occasion, they lacked a more, a more tough-minded faith uh, in the power of God than, than what they actually had. Yeah, we don't know exactly all the nuts and bolts of so many elements of this. Like yeah. We don't really know 
how hard the disciples tried to cast out this spirit. I mean, if one of them just kind of gave a whimpering, like, hey, get out of there, you know, and then yeah. the scribes show up and they're like, what are you doing? And then they, you know, start bickering with them. We don't know exactly all we how don't. that happened. We also don't know about demonology. Yeah. Like, that's another point. Like, if we, we might just take this at face value and Jesus is just saying, this demon's really strong. You're going to have to pray about this. Like, you know, you're not me. You know, I gave you this authority, but, like, your faith has got to be strong to combat whatever this is. I don't know. I it's mean, possible. There's, there could be hierarchy of demons. There I, could I really be. don't know. There could be. And I guess maybe the reason I came to my conclusion is just because Jesus was clearly exasperated yeah. when he comes down and he, t- he calls them a, a faithless generation. And, like, yeah. you know, what's the problem, guys? I think we can definitely just chalk it up to, I mean, at the end of the day, no matter what all the cogs are to it, like, yeah, it's a lack of faith, like you said. That's, yeah. yeah. I, I, don't think, I don't think that's an unfair conclusion to make yeah. at all. Well, but anyway, Jesus exerts his power here, and um, if nothing else, it just, it just puts the emphasis where it belongs. And this is where Mark, throughout his whole Gospels, wanted to put it, and that is Christ is the one with the power here. Um, and, and maybe that's what, what, what this why this maybe needed to happen uh, was so that uh, this father of this boy or maybe the other people there would have come away more impressed with Jesus. You know, last thing you want is for a, a, one of the disciples to perform a miracle and people would be impressed with the disciples. Yeah. And that's not where the emphasis needs to be. So uh, could have been a number of reasons as to why why it all shook down this way. Uh, verse 30 uh, continues on. They went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. So Jesus is going through a a, a territory here where it's like, I need to kind of have some alone time again with with these apostles. Mm -hmm. Um, There's still training that has to be done with these guys. And, and, And what's he needing to tell them about? Well, he's needing to tell them about the thing that he had talked with them about back in chapter 8 and revealed to them in plain words. Um, I'm going to be delivered in the hands of men. I'm going to be killed. And after I'm killed, after three days, I will rise. So this is now the second time, uh, if you're keeping score, that Jesus has just pressed this basic truth to the apostles. Did it in chapter 8. He's done it here in chapter 9. And he's going to do it for a third time when we get to chapter 10. Yep. Um, Again, number of times that Peter denies him is also three. (laughs) Yeah. And he uh, heard this three times. And, well, and here's the unfortunate thing, verse 32, um, because the response is the same every time, verse 32, but they did not understand the same. Yep. And on top of that, they were afraid to ask him. I wonder why. Uh, maybe a couple things. One, maybe there was some fear of asking, like, like, I'd be afraid to know more details about this death thing, you know? Yeah. If, if somebody came to me and they said, I know with 100% certainty that like I'm going to die, uh, I, I'm not sure that I would want to know all the details about that. Well, I mean, think about it. It's about someone you really respect saying that to you, too. Yeah. Like, bro, if you said that to me, I'd be like, man, I don't want you to die. Yeah, stop talking that way. Yeah. Um, the other thing about them being afraid to ask him about it was th- there may have been some reservation of like, we're afraid to tell him that we still don't understand because we're probably like testing his nerves at this point that we're not yeah. getting it. Yeah. Uh, again, Plus, G- they just had a blunder with the whole demon thing. Yes. Too. Yeah. So there's there's yeah. been kind of some noted moments of of them kind of pushing Jesus's frustrations, and maybe they just wisely thought, 
you know, maybe now's not the best time for us to be telling him, hey, Lord, we don't get this uh, all the way. Um, but that's the wrong response. It is. It is. Um, I, I, I'll say this. Um, if this next section that we're going to read here, um, it's clear that they they still didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe for that reason, it's probably best that they didn't uh, inquire more about this because they have they just have a wrong idea about how the kingdom's going to work, and that is so clear here, beginning of verse thirty-three. So they came to Capernaum. Well, well, real quick before we go yeah. on any further, I do want to make a point out of this uh, that kind of is personal application. Like what I, what I said before, that's the wrong response of to be afraid to like delve deeper into these kind of things. What you and I have talked a lot about how some people who might be a little bit more immature as Christians sometimes feel intimidated yeah. to like hang out with other Christians or have deep spiritual conversations. Yes. And it's like the right response if you feel that way is to ask more questions, yeah. not to just shut up and be intimidated and, yeah. and afraid. Because if those disciples would have just invested a little bit more, then they, they might have got a little bit more knowledge about and, this. And, you, and we saw that happen back uh, in one of the earlier chapters when Jesus first started speaking in parables, tells the parable of the sower. Yes. And most everybody goes home. But these guys, at least at that point, stuck around and said, Hey, Lord, what's that parable mean? Yeah. And That's a good, uh, that's a good thing. It's yeah. So, so they've done it before, um, but here at this particular point, they, they did not. And, it's um, a lot more daunting than a cute little story about seeds. Yeah, this is, this is much more serious uh, business, the stuff Jesus is talking about now. He's talking about death and, 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 and even the idea of resurrection, which is, d- defies even their, their comprehension. Um, but like I said, they, 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 they just still don't get the, the, the idea of this kingdom and that it's a, that's a spiritual thing. And, and what is going to define the kingdom? Yeah. So look at verse 33. They came to yeah. Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So, you know, in, in, as we were passing through Galilee and as we were coming here to Capernaum, I noticed you guys were back there kind of just talking with one another. What were you all talking with each other about? Verse 34, but they kept silent. <laughs> For on the way, they had argued with one, with one another about who was the greatest. I'm the greatest. Yes. No, I am. Um, oh, come on, guys. I, 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 this isn't recorded for us here in Mark, um, but we're told that actually uh, James and John's mother petitions Jesus on an occasion about, you know, can you let my sons yes. have like the, the preeminent positions in your kingdom? You know, let them sit at your left and right hand, you know, in your kingdom. And, and that probably is a good illustration of the way their minds were thinking as they thought about what the kingdom was going to be about. They thought the kingdom was about, you know, all right, hey, we're, we're, we're the chosen twelve. So when Jesus establishes this kingdom and he's the king, well, that means we're going to be like a court. Or, yeah, we're going to be we're going to be the royal court. We're going to comprise the round table. We're yeah. going to be these really important dignitaries and ambassadors. Yeah. And in a spiritual sense, they would be. Oh yeah. But that's not the way they were thinking. We're going to be these really important. We're, it's almost like maybe we're going to be princes. Yeah. In, in this new kingdom, uh, and, and that we're just going to be exalted. We're going to have these exalted positions where we get to be first. And we're going to get notoriety, and we're going to be considered great. 
But they are exalted in a weird twist. In a weird twist, yes. they are. But, but it's again, not... it's, it, they, they have, they're thinking of this in a very yes. carnal way. Yes. Um, but that's the beauty of it is that that later on, no spoilers or anything. Okay, a little bit of spoilers. But we see that they realize this teaching Jesus is about to give, and then they are exalted because of that later. That's right. That's right. So they don't tell Jesus, you know, <laughs> yeah. what they've been discussing. But here's the thing. And you wouldn't. Yeah, but here's but, <laughs> But the, the, the funny thing about that is, at this point, you've got to know, even if we don't tell him, Jesus knows what we were talking yeah. about. He's able to see our hearts. He knows all these things. And that is the reason Jesus says what he says next, verse 35. He sat down and he called the twelve. I, I actually think there's something poignant about that. The fact that Jesus like sits down with them. I almost think that that's almost would convey to me, like, boys, sit down. Like, like, what I'm about to tell you is, is the essence of the kingdom. This is important. It, it, think about like you know, a dad yes. you know, calling a child to, hey, son, come here. Yeah. And he gets down on their level. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going I'm to, let me just be square with yeah. you here. Like, you need to listen to what I'm about I'm, to say. And Jesus is about to, I think, blow their minds and blow our minds with what he's going to say. Because this is not traditional thinking. It's not natural to no, think No, like everything this. about this is, is backwards. So he yeah. says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Now, in order to really drive home that point that this is, this is about being a servant, mm-hmm. that this kingdom is going to be built on a servant. It's going to be built on the back of one who was willing to serve humanity, who's willing to sacrifice and give his life, who, whose entire life while he was here was all about doing for others. I mean, very rarely do we read of Jesus doing anything for himself. Um, and that is what he calls his followers to be about, to be a servant of all and to, to not put themselves first. Yeah. And to illustrate that, verse 36, he takes a child and he puts the child in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so Jesus uses this child to illustrate just the need for humility. You think about a child. Can a child really do anything for you? No. Not really. I mean, yeah, they can make a smile and those things. But I mean, like... A child can't like return a favor. Like if I leave a memo on their desk, yeah, they they, they can't even read it. They can't even read it, let yeah. alone do it. Uh, there's there's just not really anything that a child can do for anybody. And so the idea here that Jesus conveys about um, the one who will receive and assist and do something for even a small child who can't even do anything for you in return. Yep then that's the person who understands what being a servant's all about. And, and that is what real, what real servanthood, that's the challenge of real servanthood, is like when we're willing to do for others and we don't expect anything in return, and we do it recognizing I'm not doing this for any return, and I don't, ex- don't expect it, and, and all, there's a possibility this person maybe can't even do anything for me. Yes. But that's not what it's about. It's about, it's about just being a servant. And that's what Jesus came and lived. He didn't just talk it. He actually uh, lived it. Yeah. And he, uh, he, he highlights this, this child and using the illustration of a child is, like I said, uh, that's, that's totally 
not traditional to yeah. to try and I mean because again in this time there was even more of a stratification of like you wouldn't even like acknowledge a child kids were at the bottom know. of the totem pole yeah yes. and Jesus is like I want to highlight this child and that's yeah. that's kind of amazing well and just let's just say something about that just kind of as a side note here I mean look at what Jesus does with this child and maybe this is just something about Jesus's character that just doesn't get said enough you know we've noted often throughout this gospel you know man Jesus has power and he he can speak with force and you know he's got authority and that's true but he takes a child and it says he takes him in his arms yeah like he's like picking up this kid kind of holding him yeah and imagine like he sets him down like right here on his on, on his knee and that says a couple things number one uh, I think kids liked Jesus yeah we see this several different times where you know kids are willing to come to him and then that's the second thing from that also says Jesus liked kids uh, and <laughs> when we get older sometimes we, we just we get annoyed by kids and like the greatest gift you can give a kid and this I've learned this having my own child attention is just give them attention yes. and your time more than any you know monetary gift you could give them uh, they just want your time and attention Jesus I don't know. Jesus is. We don't think of him being an example and setting, you know, much of a pattern for us as far as parental. For, for parental things. But right here, dads especially would would do well to take a take a note from Jesus. Jesus loves the little children. There's a reason we sing that song. Heck, That's exactly does. right. And he he lo- he looks to all of us kind of like like you know younger siblings too. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's that's the relationship that we have. And we look at our big brother, and he's the kind of guy who'll you know. Invite us over, hang out with us, and 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 be this way toward us, you know. Yep. In our spiritual immaturity and and, and all. Well, uh, let's carry on. Uh, John speaks to him, and let's let's be mindful of the fact that the child. I imagine the child stays here in in this position while Jesus continues doing this teaching, because he's gonna come, he's gonna come back here in verse forty two here in just a minute, and he's gonna mention something about you know a child like this. So yeah. I assume this is all still in the same setting. But verse thirty eight, John interjects this. He says, "Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us." But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, this passage gets twisted and and gets abused from time to time uh, to say that well looks like here like Jesus is just saying we ought to just receive and accept everybody you know even if somebody's going around and they're teaching something false or um, you know they're perpetuating uh, a doctrine that's not even true and correct Jesus seems like he's saying hey you know don't stop that person there we're all it's kind of the thing of the you know we're all taking different roads but we're going to the same it's like people use this to talk about sincerity like if you're just sincere that's all that matters. But the truth is, I, I don't think Jesus is saying here at all that we ought to receive everybody and accept everything that everybody teaches or does, regardless of whether it's false or erroneous or if it leads somebody to hell. I don't think that's even under discussion here. Because notice in the text, there's nothing in the text that says 
this man, whoever he was, that was casting out demons, nothing in the text says that this guy was teaching error. Yeah. That he was doing something that was false. There's no indication that this person was leading people astray. It just says that he wasn't one of the twelve who had yeah. been following along with Jesus and John and who brought this up. Uh, and it just says he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And in all likelihood, I've thought about this, I think in all likelihood, this is probably a man that was part of that 70 that Jesus had actually sent out on the limited commission. You know, yeah. Jesus didn't just send out the 12. We're actually told that he sent out 70, uh, a, a, a bunch of unnamed people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's in all likelihood who this guy is. And we still don't even know what this guy's name was. Uh, but he had, given, he had given this same power to now, that 70 to where drive was, out. Where was that limited commission again? Where, where was the verse reference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that happened back in Mark chapter, was it chapter 6? Yeah, back in chapter 6 was when he, uh, when he, when he started to send out the 12 yeah. on the limited commission. Now, Mark's gospel doesn't mention the 70. I think Matthew's gospel is, is what mentions the 70. But it okay. would have been at that same time with the, with, with the limited commission. Uh, but they were also given the authority to cast out unclean spirits okay. uh, as well. But the point is... I didn't know that. Yeah, but the point is, this guy, he's doing the will of Christ. If he's part of that 70, he's doing what the Lord had said to do, even though he's not here you know, amongst our little particular congregation, right? our traveling congregation. He's still doing my, my work and my will, and so we're not going to stop him. In fact, we're going to be thankful for what he's doing. Um, in, in essence, what that guy's doing is he's... He's offering cups of cold water. He's serving in the kingdom uh, in in his particular way. Yeah, um, you know, be thankful for those those things. Um, verse forty two, this last section. Yep, he comes back to talking about the using the child as an illustration. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. So. First of all, if we just talk about just literally here about the idea of causing a child to to sin, um, maybe that takes on different permutations. If you're talking about like a small child who really doesn't even have a sense of of right or wrong, I don't even know that if you like, it's like if you took like a, a five year old kid and put a gun in their hand and taught them how to shoot another person, like are, are they accountable to God for murder? I don't believe so, yeah. but I think the idea here of like, if you would influence or in some way teach a child and cause a child to think that like certain things are 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 right when they're actually wrong, and you do those kinds of things and you um, you, you cause them in that sense to sin because if they do sin later on, it's going to be of their own choice. Yeah. Um, but you've contributed to that, then Jesus says uh, you're culpable in that. Um, and that, the truth is, that principle holds true whether you're talking about a child or yeah. you'd be talking about an adult. Yeah. I don't even think it matters. Well, I think, too, another way to kind of look at this, uh, that doesn't contradict what you say at all, but uh, just, just maybe a slightly different angle. I mean, when he says causes them to sin, well, like when I was a kid, for example, I saw a lot of behaviors mm -hmm. that are sinful Yes, and then grew up and did those things yes. before I started, you know, studying the Bible and learning about Christ. I just didn't know any better. Exactly. Um, and I would say that I was caused to sin. Now, is that my fault? Sure. In my in my own accountability, yes. But then there is an, a bit of an onus 
on on those other folks as well that, that did those things. Yes, there's some I culpability observed. there. Yeah. Um, and, and and the truth is, and again, we, we can still just be talking about, we don't have to even talk about kids, we can still talk about adults. I, I, that, to me, one of the obvious illustrations here is um, when it comes to like modesty or, or immodesty, you know, if you walk around, uh, if, if a woman walks around in revealing, enticing clothing, uh, and I gaze upon her, yeah. Um, all right, yeah, that's on me for for gazing and, and allowing lust to, to to come into my mind, and I'm going to be responsible for that. But she has also played a role in that um, by putting it out there, uh, and and in this sense, uh, causing me to sin. Um, she's got again. She's got a certain level of culpability and all that. Uh, and there's there's that that principle would apply just in a number of, of different situations. Uh, he continues on. It, really, this whole section here is just talking about the seriousness of sin yeah. and like the links that we need to go to 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 get in the kingdom and to stay in the kingdom and to do everything that we can to to not miss out on the kingdom. So, verse forty three: If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so the point of this section is, um, and Jesus does use some very extreme, I don't think he's... he's necessarily meaning literal, but you know what? If it is necessary, yeah, you do need to be willing to do this. But he's just trying to convey some extreme examples uh, to talk about the price that we need to be willing to pay to enter in to the to the to the kingdom presently and then ultimately the the, the kingdom of God of heaven. Right. Well for me when I read this I I think about excuses. Yeah. And how I've even excuses I've told myself excuses I've heard from other people of, you know, I just get in this situation and I just, you know, lose all control or, you know, whatever it may be, uh, especially, you know, talking about like like lustful things or, or maybe even like violence. Like I just, you know, things just escalated and then this just happened. It's like they're, they didn't have control of their, their own body. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is saying, okay, well, if that's the argument you want to make for why you sin, like almost you're not responsible. Like those were your hands doing those things, not your not your mind and your soul. Like, well, he's saying, well, then if it's your hands' fault, then why aren't you willing to just cut them off? Mm -hmm. That's because it's part of you. It is part of you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and you're using those to yes. do those things. Um, maybe just kind of as a quick side note here, when Jesus talks verse forty four about unquenchable fire and then in verse 48 where he talks about hell being the place where the worm doesn't die and the fire's not quenched uh, that ought to put to rest the idea that hell is going to be this total annihilation where you just get destroyed and yeah. like then you just cease to exist no Jesus says it's an ongoing pain and suffering uh, it does not end um, you know in some ways total annihilation would be would be very merciful yeah um, but that's not what hell is going to be about. Final two verses here, kind of odd, maybe on the surface. 49 and 50, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Uh, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 2.13 is one of those references. Uh, we're told that sacrifices 
which would happen on an altar where there would be fire, um, were actually salted. Mm. Uh, just interesting little point. Uh, and I think Jesus maybe is kind of using that imagery here uh, to talk about and get the disciples to think about the need to maintain your saltiness. We're well acquainted with the idea of Jesus saying you're the salt of the earth. Yeah. Uh, that you're going to need to maintain your saltiness even in the midst of fire, the midst of fiery trials and difficulties that are going to come as Christians, um, you're going to have to figure out a way to continue to be distinct as disciples uh, of mine. Uh, and if we lose our saltiness uh, anywhere along the way, then we've, we're not going to be of any benefit to the kingdom. Uh, have to maintain that saltiness. So that's 50 verses. That's a long stretch there. Any other thoughts here on Mark 9? Shoo! Yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Um, uh, not not really uh, not really much else to say about it. Uh, thankful for everybody that's listening so far. Uh, like we're over we're halfway through now, and uh, just it's great getting to know Jesus more and more. And and I love everybody who's listening. All right. Well, that's Mark nine. We'll pick up next week then with Mark chapter ten as we continue to follow Jesus as he heads toward Jerusalem.